This is Steve Adubato, and this is the Leadership Hour with my colleague Mary Gamba. We're in the studio here at East Main Media with Brian Brodeur in the studio and his team making everything happen. By the way, it does take either a village or a team, I'm not sure which, to actually get stuff done. Who said that? Oh, Hillary Clinton. Let's not get into that right now. Um, <laughs> but I, you know what? Interesting. I had in my book, Lessons in Leadership, which people can find. Oh, it's stand-deliver.com. That is our website. Stand-deliver.com. I actually wrote a chapter. We'll just jump right into this. Yeah. I remember writing a chapter. And the chapter is not really about Hillary Clinton. It's about great leaders take responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's not a political book at all. It is a book about people in public life and corporate life who either take responsibility or don't take responsibility. And I'm obsessed by that whole thing. And I remember writing in the section about Hillary Clinton, it always struck me that she was so resistant, as was her husband back in the day with Monica Lewinsky, to taking responsibility for her actions. And I remember during the campaign, 2016 campaign, now, I'm no fan of Donald Trump's. Wasn't then, not now. He's our president. Wish him the best. Not a huge fan, particularly as a leader. But I remember that Hillary Clinton was so resistant to accepting any responsibility for the fact <laughs> that they, she had an email problem and that it was obvious she had an email problem and she was using technology that a secretary of state under Barack Obama, the president, she wasn't supposed to be using because it wasn't secure and because people had access to it. And I'm thinking, why couldn't you say, you know what? I screwed up. I shouldn't have done this. You realize how long it took for her to ultimately get to that? And for me, forget about politics. That was a lesson in leadership and how not to lead when it comes to taking responsibility, A, and B, what we tell our kids every single day. You talk about your two boys, your two teenage boys. I talk about our four kids and what we try to teach them about taking responsibility. First rule of leadership, own it. Take responsibility. Why is it so hard for so many? It's very hard. From a very young age, if you're not taught that by your parents or just by some sort of a a figure in your life, the importance, because it feels bad, you're admitting that you made a mistake, you did something wrong. And it's just human nature to be defensive and to say all the reasons why something happened. I was wronged. It's because he did this or I, I wasn't told to do that. And though through the years, I've realized that it is so much easier um, to accept responsibility. Sure, the, the backlash that you're going to get for whatever it is that you're taking responsibility for, but the sooner you take responsibility, the sooner you could actually take actions to fix it, and then more importantly, action to make sure that whatever it is that went wrong doesn't happen again. And frankly, a great leader says specifically what they're going to do to fix it and by when. Otherwise, it's hollow. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry. What are you going to do? What? I'm just sorry. Isn't that good enough? No. Uh, Quick anecdote. By the way, Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba, Brian Brodeur, this is the Leadership Hour on AM 970. People can catch us every weekend, usually at 2 p.m. on Sunday. Sometimes we get moved around because there's a great sporting event on that terrific station, AM 970, and our partners there. Mary, where else can people find us? Uh, Right on Facebook. They could actually follow us at Steve Adubato, Ph.D. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, as well as on Twitter, Steve Adubato. And they can subscribe to the podcast as well on Apple iTunes and Google Play. So there's a whole bunch of places they can find us, as well as our website, which you mentioned before, stand-deliver.com. All right, here's my story. So we often talk about leadership, and in many ways, I find parenting and leadership, and you and I have talked about this before, you could use the same word. 
All right. My wife, Jennifer, and I have a little bit of a disagreement on that. She says parenting is parenting. Leadership is leadership. Eh. After this story, let's check it out. See what you think. So our son, Nick, is 16. Will is... 16. I'll be 17 in a few weeks. Okay. Congratulations to Thank Will, you. a fine young man, a leader of tomorrow or of today. Maybe. So I'm big with, listen, you screw up, you own it. So my son, Nick, and I were big fans of the Big East... The tournament's over by the time this airs. But we were going to Madison Square Garden. And I said to our son, I'll get the tickets to the Big East tournament. We're fans of Seton Hall University. I love the Big East tournament. Very competitive. That's not the point. So I said, I'll get the tickets. I'll make sure we also have reservations at a restaurant that was right by Madison Square Garden where the Big East is taking place. I said, I'll also make sure on the back end we figure out how we're going to get home. Could you do this, son? Could you check? I'm going to ask you, check the train schedule so that we know exactly what we're doing. This was a Friday night in the Big East tournament. Trust me, there's a point to this long story. He goes, yep, I got it, Dad. I said, so you're going to nail down the train schedule? Yes. In the morning before he went to school on Friday, I said, Nick, train schedule, it's on you because I don't want to take a car into Manhattan during rush hour, train's best. Got it. He comes home from baseball practice at Seton Hall Prep at 6.15 and says, Dad, the train's at 6.25. <laughs> I said, hold, hold on, son, one second. The train's at 6.25? You're at home at 6.15. I told you to tell me what the train schedule was. And he said, and it started. Here's the point of this whole thing. Dad, practice went long. Dad, I didn't have time to check. The, I said, son, it took you an hour this morning to get ready for school. Last night, you could have checked out the train schedule. All day at school, you're sitting in classes. Check your phone. But by the way, use your phone for a million other things. Yeah. You took responsibility for checking the train schedule and confirming what it was. The game was at a certain time, 9 o'clock at night. So we go to dinner first. He goes, well, you know what? Dad, I just looked. There's a second train at <clears throat> 6.50, but that doesn't go directly to, you know the rest of the story, Brian. It goes to Hoboken. Then you have to make a transfer to a different, not even the same train. Yeah. This to the path from New Jersey oh, Transit. Sure. Why is this all relevant? I'm saying, Nick, it takes an hour and 10 minutes to get from our home to the garden on that second train that we can make. Well, Dad, what do you want me to do? That's the train schedule. And I was now losing it because it was no longer about the train schedule. It was about the fact that he was resisting taking responsibility. And I started to lose my cool. And I said, Nick, of course, this is where I screwed up. Oh, yeah. One thing. That was the one thing, Nick, that you had responsibility for. Just checking the train schedule. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. And my wife is just looking at me like, are you really going to do this? Yeah, that's right. I am going to do this. Mm -hmm. And Nick, you want to know what? I'm not going to the game now. Find somebody else. And of course, I slammed the door behind me like a child. <laughs> did you go to the game? Of course I went to the game <laughs> because I came out realizing whatever and, yeah. and we took an Uber and got in traffic and we got there. Yeah. Now, why do I... Oh, no, we took the train and it was 16 different ways to get there and we got I there late. I can only imagine how great that went because you're really good at traveling. So I'm, I'm sure horrible. that went really but well. But the point of the story is, yes, there was 16 different transfers and we got there late. And I kept saying, Nick, when I finally come down, I said, Nick, why when I confronted you about this, didn't you simply say, Dad, I... 
screwed up. He goes, I did. I said, Nick, you said it after an hour and a half. He goes, but you weren't giving me a chance. I said, Nick, a lot of excuses, but you never owned it. Mm -hmm. In the future, I want you to own it. That's what we do in our family. And my wife's like, he's too young. He's not going to pick that up. I go, nope, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm, by the way, I apologize. I'm supposed to be teaching storytelling. Way too many details. No, this is a good story Go. because it could be... What's this have to do with leadership and responsibility? It has everything to do with leadership. And I've shared stories right here on this podcast with you and I having those same conversations of it's just so much quicker and easier to accept responsibility and then move on than it is to get into a long... Because then the person who's trying to, you in the situation, give feedback to your son, then you get to that boiling point, to that breaking point. Which was not acceptable. Yeah, If exactly. I were Gandhi, I would have been better. Yeah, but I mean, we're all human as well. <laughs> And it is frustrating. And oftentimes, and again, I was listening for the word because I knew it would come up. Just, you just had to do this. I did the hard part. You just. And my husband, Bill, calls me out on that all the time because I'll be like, I did this, this, and this. You just had to do blah, blah, blah. What's that a trigger for? Well, it, what it, does it, trigger? it minimizes whatever it is that he did compared to whatever I did. Because once you throw in that word just, then that person, that even in, in this case, Nick's case, it's even more of that barrier goes up. And it's even more of that, hey, you are accusing me of not doing even the easy part or the small part. I was right. accusing him of that. I know. But, what, but, but why is that either bad it, leadership or bad parenting? Oh, it's not. Because we're really saying that Nick was a bad leader in this situation just by taking responsibility. Now, they're 16, but that is no, there's no better age. And in my opinion, it's even long, younger in my house, like, you know, because my youngest is 13. And, and it started way before that. Middle school for me was, you know, I gave him the three strike rule, right? And again, this is leadership, taking responsibility and ownership. Will went through all three years of middle school. Never once did he call and say, I forgot, fill in the blank. I forgot my folder. I forgot my instrument. I'm By sorry, the, Chris, our 14-year-old, are you listening right now? Mr. I forgot, yeah. but I'm sorry. And so then Cheap fast shot, forward, I know. I know. <laughs> Joey gets there. Within two weeks, he had called me three times, whether it was his instrument, whether it was his paper he left on I the forgot. printer. I forgot. So I said, oh, this is new. This is a leadership lesson for me. How am I going to handle this? And my husband, who's tough love, he's like, you're not going to bring it next time. And I said, ooh. Bill said that? Yeah. And you want to know what? I didn't bring it the next time. And I didn't bring it the next time after that. And you want to know what happened? He learned and he never forgot. And I, I mean, sometimes now, now he'll take responsibility with the teacher and say, I left it at home or one time better yet, because we live about 30 yards away from the school. He, <laughs> he said to the teacher, you watch out the window. I'm going to run home. You could see me go into my front door and I'm going to bring it son. back. This happened. Yeah, it was a big negotiation. But I don't do it anymore. And you want to know what? It stopped. And if, and in this day and age, we enable our children, we enable our employees if we do for them, is my point. It's so interesting. And it's hard. It's hard as a leader to let go, but you have to. And you know, to this point, and by the way, we're going to be listening to our good friend, Barry Ostrowski, who is in fact the CEO, the president and chief operating, excuse me, chief executive officer, the president and chief executive officer of RWJ Barnabas Health. I had a chance to sit down and talk to Barry about leadership and we'll just go to that in a minute. But before we do that... Here's what's interesting about it, and it is a leadership issue. For some people are saying, why, why is Steve Adubato, why is Mary Gamby, why are they talking about issues with their kids? And here's what it is. I felt really bad when I was, frankly, berating my son for not doing the thing he was supposed to do and then not owning it. Mm -hmm. And by the time my wife said to me, back off, leave it alone, 
she was right, but by the time we got onto that train, I saw in his eyes, he's not that good an actor. He was genuinely embarrassed. He genuinely felt bad. And I remember putting my arm around him saying, Nick, in the future, just I promise you, if you just say, Dad, I screwed up, I'm sorry. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm confident I would have said, all right, buddy, I'm not happy with you, but let's figure this out. Yeah, or it would have been shorter. Whatever much, the much. whatever the rage, whatever the, the anger that, yeah. Because, you know, we're But they don't all believe human. that. Now bring it back to work. How often do we have our colleagues that we work with, our clients we work with, team members, others? It's this exact same thing, and it goes on way too long. Now, I should be a better leader. Others should be a better leader and teach them, you know, you really should accept responsibility. Mm -hmm. But when they don't, it's frustrating. It is. It is. And it only makes the situation worse. It really does. So, by the way, going back to Hillary Clinton, my frustration with her, with her husband, Bill, who, I don't know, I remember Hillary Clinton went on the Today Show in the middle of the Bill Clinton thing way back in the day when they were saying, you know, he, you know, she was a 21 or whatever she was, your old intern, Monica Lewinsky. And, you know, these president of the United States, if something happened, it's not appropriate. And she's like, well, this is a, um, she called it a vast right-wing conspiracy. This isn't a political show. I'm just saying that sounded like an excuse to me, a diversion and blaming shift Blame shifting, if you will. By the way, President Trump is not immune from the same thing. And when something happens, he doesn't own it. It's not in his DNA either. He thinks it's a sign of weakness. I've written it in my book. I think it's a sign of strength. Mm -hmm. That being said, enough about responsibility and kids and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. So Barry Ostrowski is the president and CEO of RWJ Barnabas Health, one of our longtime we're colleagues with them. We do a lot of coaching, and, and uh, they are leadership and communication coaching. They're one of the underwriters of the show coming up after this, State of Affairs, which is a public policy program. I had a chance to sit down on State of Affairs. We did a, an interview on healthcare with Barry Ostrowski on the future of healthcare. But then since he was on the set, I said, Barry, do me a favor. Mary Gamba and I do a show called The Leadership Hour. Let me ask you a little bit about your view of leadership and what it takes to be the best leader you can be. So this is Barry Ostrowski on leadership. Hi, this is Steve Adubato. I'm pleased to be joined on the Leadership Hour. Barry Ostrowski is president and CEO of RWJ Barnabas Health. Good to talk to you, Barry. Good to be here. Thank you. You, you and I talk leadership a lot, offline, online, different places. Number one leadership challenge. You thought I was going to ask lesson, but number one leadership challenge you face as a CEO is? Well, I, I've always viewed leadership as much more important than management. You and I have had those discussions. If you're going to be an effective leader, you have to create personal relationships with those you're attempting to lead. Not intrusively so, but you have to create a relationship where that person feels comfortable both listening and following you, and you take a real interest in things in that individual's life that isn't necessarily exclusively that which happens at the office. And I think because of the pace of life and business now, creating those relationships happen to be difficult, and folks hesitate to do it, and so what that does, in my view, is it dissipates the ability to be a true leader. So my advice to my folks, you know, we're a team, is that you have to take time to learn the folks you're trying to lead. You have to take an interest in what they're doing, where their children are going to college, and what are some of the pressures they're feeling outside of the office, and accommodate that in an mm -hmm. attempt to lead them to successful business conclusions. I think, unfortunately, 
society itself has stepped back from that kind of interpersonal relationship that could be productive and supportive, and as a result, leadership is more difficult to pursue. One quick follow-up on this. One doesn't have to follow Washington to know that there are folks there who spend a lot of time pointing the finger at other people. Right. Responsibility. Is it hard to accept that as a leader, you are ultimately responsible for the actions of virtually 30 plus thousand employees in your organization, even if you didn't know what they did specifically? I know it's trite, but that's the job. <clears throat> and, and I embrace it. And I frankly would rather take the blame than have any of my people take the blame. It is, is ultimately- Excuse me, right. Blame and responsibility different? Well, blame is part of responsibility. Okay, go ahead. So there's responsibility to get things accomplished, and then there's the responsibility for taking the blame if something goes wrong. And I tell that to our folks all the time. That is why I'm in the corner office, and that's going to happen, and they shouldn't feel badly about it. The truth of the matter is, I work with people who are incredibly committed and loyal, and sometimes they like to deflect the blame away from me out of a sense of loyalty or relationship, and I would prefer that not to happen. I don't want to see their careers in any way jeopardized because we ultimately agreed on a decision that didn't turn out to be a good one. It's on you? It's on me. And, and so, and by the way, when people come up to me and congratulate me on a heart transplant, you know, <laughs> I, I say, that, that's, thank you, but I had yes. very little to do with it. But nonetheless, that's part of the profile of being in the corner office. And I am very lucky because I have folks around me with whom I love to work, and they are incredibly protective of any possibility that I might take blame for something. But that is the job. Tough job, and it's not for everyone. And Barry, I want to thank you for joining us on the Leadership Hour. Thank, thank you, you, Steve. Thanks. Wow, that was... Uh... So it's interesting when you have someone like Barry Ostrowski in the studio and you, and you want to ask him about leadership. He did the responsibility thing. I don't want to harp on this, mm -hmm. but the other side of that, the thing he said about, I didn't do the heart transplant. Yeah. It is. It's about taking the praise and giving that praise to someone else. It's about being selfless when you're a leader. and Selfless? Selfless, yeah. Isn't that the word? That's the word. It is the word. Yeah. I'm trying to understand what... what well, yeah, really? because, yeah, you want to take credit to some degree. You do, because you obviously... all the responsibility and blame and virtually none of the credit? In my opinion, that's what a great leader is. Sure, you could celebrate, you know, behind the scenes. You can go home at night and high-five and have a glass of wine with your wife or your husband and, and say, I did that. I made that happen. But if you stand up in front of your team and say, I'm the reason why this company is successful... No one's going to respect you. They don't care. They know that you're making, you know, exponentially more money than they are making. You need to be humble as a leader. And you and I talk about that all the time. Wow. You know, I hope my son Nick is not listening right now because mm -hmm. I'm going to double down. Nick, you know, I love you. You're a great kid. But he, I mentioned this before, he's the coach of the JV team up at Hoop Heaven. Mm -hmm. And there's a team of kids in Montclair. Nick is an okay basketball player. He's a better coach. So talk about leadership, right? So I started, I think I talked about this on a previous show. The finals were last Sunday as we do this program. They won the JV Hoop Heaven 16-year-old championship. They're celebrating. I'm driving him home. Nick says with his brother Chris in the back seat, that was a big win. I said, so I'm so proud of you guys, Nick. He goes, it would not have happened without me. <laughs> so I said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he goes, well, you know, I was a coach. I got us into the league. I 
figured out who to put in the game at the right times. And I'm listening to him and he goes, never would have happened without me. So I said, hey, buddy, you're not asking for advice, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Even if you think that and you feel that, you can't say that. Right. But he could say it to you. That is my point exactly. He could say it to you, but he cannot say it. To- Actually, I disagree. Really? He could say it to me, but I wanted him to understand that, yes, he played a key role. But if it were not for those players stepping up and doing what they did, each one of them at different times, none of that would have happened. Mm-hmm. Either you believe in the team or you don't believe in the team. Because, Mary, that's like me saying our success as an organization, and I'm telling my wife this, or you as my closest associate and mm-hmm. friend in the workplace, you know, Mary, we would never be where we are as an organization if it weren't for my vision and my creativity and my fundraising and my. That's not okay. But it is okay. Oh, no, it's not. It's okay if you said that to your wife and you're telling me you can look me in the eye right now and never have ever said that to your wife at the dinner table and, you know, to your mom. I love your mom, Fran, if you're listening. We love you. But, yeah, like— and that, that there were certain aspects of things that I did? Yeah, but well, our but, success is not no way. But I think I think there's a level of confidence, and I think what's so funny to sit back as an objective observer and watch you and Nick interact, he's you. And that's why you guys are always butting heads. He is a mini you in the level of confidence and the level of I've got this in the level of it's funny that you delegated transportation to him and then it didn't work out. Like I said, he's kind of you because transportation <laughs> is, is not he your no, forte. Mary, he's 16. He has no one to delegate to. Right. But I'm just saying, though, you know, I'll say it right now and you can listen 10 years from now, 25 years from now. He is going to be extremely successful in whatever he does because he believes in himself and his ability to get stuff done. I his don't question. Vision. Listen, I, I, again, this is not I appreciate Mary saying and I hope things work out for our son. But I don't want to make this about me and my son. I just try to use these anecdotes for lessons. Right. But I do disagree. I mm-hmm. genuinely disagree. I can't believe you that, and I disagree. No, I'm kidding. No, but I genuinely disagree that. Right. Not about whether he's me or not. Hopefully he'll be 10 times better. But And I, I can't even imagine when I was 16, the level of arrogance and hubris and, and call it confidence. It was Right. A, I was cocky until I got cut from the JV baseball team at Essex Catholic High School. I went. I've said this before. I'll say it again. My son's actually quite a good baseball player. Both of them are. I went one for 16 as a freshman, as his Catholic, as a freshman first baseman. Mm -hmm. When I tried out for the JV team, I got cut on the last day and standing there with all my friends. Oh, my name's not there. And I kind of slinked away so no one saw me. Right. And my point is this. It was my first lesson in humility. And my point is... I had virtually none of it until that point because you have to lose and you have to wind up being rejected. So it's my way of saying this to you. Part of the thing about humility is not saying none of this would have happened without me. Part of the thing about leadership and humility is not glomming, as my old neighborhood would say, Mm -hmm. all the credit. Even if there's a part of you that thinks it, you can't say it to anyone. I really believe it. And Brian? I think there's another side of the coin, right? I don't disagree with you, but there's also the perspective that is this could never have happened without the team, right? That's true. That's the other side of the coin, not the same. Nick might have been a good coach, and I'm sure he was, right? Sure he was. Right? And that exists. 
but he wasn't hitting the three-pointer nope. or sinking the foul shots. And Barry Ostrowski was not performing that surgery, but he was involved potentially in recruiting that surgeon to the healthcare system. But does Barry go home and tell his wonderful wife, Bobby, you know what? Dr. Johnson, she did this incredible. And by the way, just so you know, I recruited her. That's not cool. That kidney transplant wouldn't have happened without me, you know. Barry would never say that. Because to me, great leadership, Mm -hmm. you don't do that, you say. I say that in the biggest, greatest leaders, I dare you to find one. Like, my mind right now is going through. We know so many leaders from Donald banking Trump takes to credit for everything. everything. And he is and, the and, president and by the of way, the free he's, world. And he's also comparable to virtually every politician in public life who takes credit for virtually everything and responsibility for virtually nothing. Not a political statement. I'm saying I don't appreciate or respect or admire that style Neither of leadership. Do I. And, and again, we're talking the difference between publicly standing up in front of an audience saying, I had the vision, I'm the one that made this happen. But the greatest leaders truly believe at their core that X would not have happened if I weren't part of that equation. And I think that's what makes them great leaders. I Actually, really do. Mary, I'm telling you, I don't want to belabor this. I feel that there's a delicate balance between having the confidence in yourself and to some degree, It takes some arrogance to believe that you can do things, to come up with an idea for a new series, to raise the money for it, put the pieces together to create a new company. (laughs) But you didn't do it alone. You need to keep people to make it happen. Of course. And And that's why even in your most private moments. Right. But you still own the vision. You still, you always do. That's all I'm saying. That's okay. Okay. Sorry. I would love to hear. People can log on to our website. They can email us directly if you are listening and you want to share your perspective on this. I'd love to hear it. They could email me at marykgamba at gmail.com. Marykgamba, G-A-M, as in Mary B-A, at At gmail.com. And what do you want them to write to you? I would love to know others' perspective on this topic of do the greatest leaders go home and say, yes, I made this happen. So... And I am a believer that the greatest, greatest leaders Mm -hmm. practice humility Mm -hmm. combined with a sense of quiet confidence. Sure. Well, we'll see how it goes. Well, this will be picked up on a later leadership hour. Uh, What do we got? About five and a half minutes left? Interesting segue. Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba, Brian Brodeur. This is the Leadership Hour. We're being listened to on the radio on AM 970. want to thank Barry for joining us a little bit earlier By the way, where can people check us out on our podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So at Apple iTunes, as well as Google Play, they can subscribe to the podcast to hear past episodes, which is fantastic. Stand-deliver.com. If people want to learn more about your book, Lessons in Leadership, and your previous books on branding and communication, then they can follow us on Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. And then on Twitter, at Steve Adubato. Okay. How about this one? Four and a half minutes left. Leadership comes in all forms. And I'm a big fan when people speak out publicly about certain things that need to be spoken about. Okay, what am I talking about? So I hope this is not dated because unfortunately this story will remain a very powerful story. Mary, did you happen to see the documentary series on R. Kelly? Yes. Yes, I actually did. Was it? I want to say it was, it was on Lifetime. Life, I don't know. Check out whether it was on a and your Lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lifetime, it was one of those two. Because I want to give the appropriate credit. So I'll tell you what struck me. And this is interesting 
how I'm defining leadership. Mm -hmm. So I'm watching this disgusting, disgraceful, horrible human being. And forget about the legal this or that. I don't know how things are going to play out. That's not the issue. Where was it, Brian? Lifetime. Lifetime. Thank you. I was Don't right. be so smug, Mary. <laughs> so, so I watched him as these young girls were, he, he enslaved them. He took them in. Their parents didn't know where they were. They're outside his house. They couldn't get to them. 15, 16, 17, horrible stuff, right? And then I saw a video in the documentary of John Legend, who I'm a huge fan of. His music, I think the way it carries himself, but who the heck knows what anyone's really like. I thought to myself, I watched John Legend, who is part of the R&B community, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I'm a big R&B fan, and he said, it's a disgrace. R. Kelly is an absolute disgrace, and um, I would never perform with him. Anything that I've ever done with him, I'm taking off. I don't know where the, the music was. Lady Gaga did it later. Um, but the bottom line is I saw R. Kelly, excuse me, I saw uh, John Legend step up, and he didn't care about whatever criticism he might have gotten from uh, the African-American community, the R&B community. He was like, this is wrong, and I'm going to say it's wrong because those young girls are innocent victims. That's leadership. It is, and better yet, he did not do it for uh, we've talked about it in the podcast, he did not do it for the high five and good for you for he speaking He got nothing out. to gain. Nothing to gain and, you know, more to lose, frankly, for the people that he may turn off, you know, who are on the R. Kelly side and who don't believe that any of this is true. And, you know, obviously now these are still just allegations and everything's still playing out, frankly. But forget about the criminal legal yeah, yeah, yeah. proceedings. We saw what we saw. Oh, yeah. And something, you know, if it doesn't feel right, it isn't right. If something just seems a little off. And, well, the one thing is public that we know is true is that he married an underage girl yes. also who obviously pretended to be older than she was. Um, and, you know, it That's seemed as That's just the tip if, of the iceberg. Right. But when, and, when, when, when John Legend did that, yeah. why is that leadership? Because this isn't a show about uh, culture and R&B no, music. It's about no. leadership. Why was that leadership? It was leadership because he did it despite... You know, he spoke out about what he believed in, what he believed to be right and true, and did not care what anybody thought about him. It wasn't about popularity. It wasn't like, oh, look at me. He spoke from the heart and said what he really believed, you know, in regards to that case. So that courage. is true. Mm -hmm. Courage, yeah. Leadership and courage. Um, you ever hear that old expression? I'll get it wrong. Um, it's, it's not that great people or great leaders are not afraid. It's that they may, in fact, be afraid, and they do it anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's bravery. Yeah. That's leadership. That's courage. Like, whoa, so-and-so is never afraid. I don't even know what that means. Mm -hmm. But you do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, if it's not scary, if it doesn't seem like it's almost impossible or insurmountable to do it, that's a reason why you should do it, frankly. Um, I love all those goofy, like, leadership quotes that are out there on Twitter, and you follow them, and the sport quotes, and... I often just snap them and save them and send them to the kids, whether it's yeah. sports season or not. And it's all about believing in yourself. It's believing in yourself when nobody else will, and that's what makes you a true leader. I agree. By the way, Brian, let's do this. Uh, for the next Leadership Hour that we're taping, um, can we look up some of the most famous leadership quotes? You throw them at us, mm -hmm. and Mary and I will just respond to them. Oh, yeah. The most famous, profound uh, leadership, what are they called? Not just quotes, but... Um, no, they're inspirational quotes. I mean, I forget what the word is. Uh, no, nah, Marion Williamson has a word for them. 
um, daily affirmations, or anecdotes, yeah. whatever. It doesn't matter. So okay, yeah. I'll throw them at you anyway. <laughs> throw, throw, throw those leadership things at us. Brian Rodeur, Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba, the Leadership Hour. Stay tuned for State of Affairs with Steve Adubato. Um, it's going to be good stuff. State leaders talking about stuff that matters in New Jersey. Check in at, check out next week. I swear I'll talk better. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. This is Tracy Thompson, New Jersey's acting insurance fraud prosecutor. The state of New Jersey is making learning about and reporting insurance fraud easier than ever. At njinsurancefraud.org, you'll find tips on identifying insurance fraud and a simple, confidential form for reporting it. Report it, end it. Hi, I'm Barry Ostrowski. At RWJ Barnabas Health, we believe that everyone needs to be informed about the important healthcare issues affecting their lives. That's why we're proud to support the important educational programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at Two Gateway. Funding has been provided by RWJ Barnabas Health, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, NJM Insurance Group, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, founded by the Jewish community. Choose New Jersey. Our mission is attracting companies to the Garden State. And by NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. And by New Jersey Globe. State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV studio. It's our pleasure to welcome Jared Maples, director of the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security and Preparedness. Good to see you, Jared. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. You know, the, people, I'm sure people ask you all the time, how safe are we? Mm -hmm. Too broad a question. My question is, what are we doing to be as safe as the state needs to be? It's a, a great question and it's something we think about quite a bit. There's always threat out there and something we talk about frequently. We put out our annual threat assessment, for example, the report about all the threats that we see here at the state. Um, but what we're doing about it is working in collaboration. One thing I can assure the people in New Jersey is we work tightly with FBI, Federal Homeland Security, the New Jersey State Police, and all of our local and county partners to counter the threat, to make them aware of what, to, uh, what the threats are and then what they can do about it. An important initiative we operate is getting the community aware of those same things. So the See Something, Say Something campaign, for example, in the terrorism world, some of the work we're doing in cybersecurity to make sure we're highlighting what those mm -hmm. threats are and, again, most importantly, what they can do about them. By the way, we're, as we're uh, talking to Jared Maples, who had up Homeland Security in the state. The website will be up. And he talked about public awareness and information. It's part of what we are here for as well. So go on to that site to find out more. The uh, 2019 terrorism threat assessment, mm -hmm. when you rank them, help us on this. Sure. Uh, anarchist extremists who are mobilized to around perceived injustice. You got ISIS, you got uh, militia extremists, 
You got uh, sovereign citizens who are anti-government groups who mainly target law enforcement. You got white supremacists. Is there a ranking there? So yeah, the rankings are done for, for high, moderate, and low. Um, interesting part about our rankings are really two buckets or umbrellas of terrorism. There's international terrorism and domestic terrorism. We don't rank those. Um, we break them down by ideologies, which you're, we, we just listed. Um, so we break them down, for example, a high threat in New Jersey. The highest threat is homegrown violent extremists. Rahimi Saipov, who did the West Side Highway truck uh, ramming about a year and a half ago. Those are great examples of HVs and still something we see as a, a top tier HVs. threat. Homegrown violent extremists. That's the biggest threat? Uh, yep. And then, and then but remember, we break them down by ideology. So realistically, uh, all those threats, the international and domestic terrorism, are 1A and 1B. They're both high top level targets. The ideology is based off of threats based off of where we know geographically they are, mm. um, if, incidents that have happened in New Jersey, um, potential incidents that have, could happen in New Jersey. That's our methodology, without getting too far into all the specific details of how we bake where the is, algorithm. Uh, Jerry, where does ISIS, yeah. quote unquote, fit into this? So it's interesting, um, HVs, or homegrown, homegrown violent extremists, are inspired by groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, some of the major international terrorism organizations. We tier them as the lowest threat, the actual ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda core elements. Lowest. We do. Um, so they're, what, when they do an operation, for example, Al-Qaeda's signature um, attack was 9-11, right? right. Um, there's a lot of uh, key indicators and flags for the behaviors, um, directives from emanating from the leadership, uh, Zawahiri in this case, it used to be bin Laden, obviously. Um, there's a lot of different financial transactions that happen, logistics, quite frankly. And those are areas that the federal government in particular, but so too we at the state level, have really um, honed our approach at, at intercepting and, and heading off. So the homegrown violent extremists, the people are inspired by but not mm -hmm. directed by, become a top-tier threat for us. Talk about cybersecurity. Yep. So we're responsible for cybersecurity What's in the state. Threat? Uh, the threat is, is evolving and persistent. It is every single day. A great example in New Jersey is in municipal governments. We've seen a huge uprise in what's called ransomware attacks. Um, so a, it can be, again, a, a police office, a, a school, uh, an authority, a water authority, or something like that have been attacked. Um, they get in through spear phishing or phishing a lot of times where they'll send an email that's in, you know, encoded or encrypted with, with bad malware, they call it, um, which gets into the system itself. They take over the system and they hold it hostage, just like a kidnapping case, um, a regular traditional kidnapping, which in this case it's online. And by the way, give some folks, uh, as the website goes up again, <clears throat> Jared, you, you hear people say, I got this email from the IRS, mm -hmm. the FBI. I saw the logo. I got to do something. Yep. You say? So a lot of times, uh, well, number one is we put all the information out there about those threats on our website. Again, njhomelandsecurity.gov. Or we also have cyber.nj.gov, which say is again. the cyber. cyber.nj.gov. That'll direct connect to the NJ Kick, which is the New Jersey Communications and Cyber Integration Cell. Um, we're the first state in the United States to have something like that, which is analysis, threat sharing, threat information, and then mitigation techniques to get out of it when it happens. So they're engaged in all those incidents I talked about. What is this one on cybersecurity? Girls Go Cyber Start is what? Yep, so that's a great effort. That, that's a national level effort that we've tied into. Um, I'm proud to say we're leading it um, across the United States. But Girls Go Cyber Start is a, a way to invigorate uh, young women to get involved in STEM and more importantly and more specifically into cyber um, uh, cyber activities. So it's a competition. They're welcome to come and, and they work through encryption codes and try to solve them. You don't have to have a computer background mm -hmm. to, to do it, um, but it's just a great way to earn some money, scholarship money, for example, and, and uh, get young women involved and interested in cyber. Uh, final question. Um, 
we're very much involved in a series on the future of innovation. Yeah. Yeah. How much of what you and your colleagues do every day is tied to quote unquote, not just the future of innovation, yep. but innovation today? Um, quite a bit. We're almost a startup lab. We try and, and try to focus and innovate as within the Homeland agency? Security. Yeah, is that, is that crazy? <laughs> Explain so, that. As, a, as an innovation side. So we're constantly trying to find new ways to get at old problems and new problems. We're trying to get ahead of those. And sometimes it's through cyber. Of course, that's the easy nexus with technology. But also in counterterrorism, we're doing new things every single day to try to reimagine how we prevent, uh, defend and protect New Jersey. Just not looking at it the same way, and that's the innovative part? Uh, that's the innovative part, yep. And, and we're, we're trying. And if something doesn't work, we readdress it, try to fill those gaps and fix it. Um, and that's a little different approach. Cyber is a great example of it, something we're doing that is out on the kind of the edge of the United States, quite frankly, um, but really looking at what we can do to innovate and make mm -hmm. that better and, and get ahead of the threat. We know that there's hackers. How do we get ahead of it in a year or two? Jared Maples is the director of the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security and Preparedness. Thank you and your colleagues for what you do every day to work to protect us. Thank you, Jared. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm Steve Adubato. This is State of Affairs, and we will be right back. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD and follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We are honored to be joined by Dr. Denise Rogers, who's Vice Chancellor at Rutgers University in the area of? Interprofessional programs. You're also one of the smartest, most impactful physician leaders that, that I've ever spoken to, particularly on the subject of what is being called trauma-informed care. Talk about it, Doctor. Thank you. So we have increasingly learned over the last 20 plus years the impact of trauma on child development and subsequently on the health of adults. And we're now increasingly interested then in understanding less of what's wrong with you and more of what has happened to you. For example. So for example, we know that adults who in childhood experience six or more adverse events will have a life expectancy that's 20 years less than the average life expectancy. Okay, adverse childhood experiences, otherwise known as ACEs. Otherwise known okay. as ACEs. <clears throat> and By the way, excuse me, check out NJTV, site will be up. Uh, our good friend Michael Hill, who we just, we had a conversation with him, did a five-part series on this topic. Check it out, I'm sorry. Yes. And so, um, one of the things that we know about ACEs that include things like physical, emotional, sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, having a parent with a mental illness, having a parent with a substance use disorder, having an incarcerated parent, having parents who've had very difficult divorce. Children who are exposed to these things then have difficulty often as they're growing up with emotional regulation, sometimes with learning, mm -hmm. because they grow up in this heightened sense of stress. They never know what's coming next. And because of the physiologic effects on children, as they get older, oftentimes they'll self-medicate. So they smoke, or they drink, or they may use drugs, or they may eat. Mm -hmm. And what that leads to then are increased rates of heart disease, cancer, but also we see higher rates of suicide, higher rates of depression, substance use, that sort of thing. Along, this, along these lines, doctor, and we'll put up the, our right from the start, NJ, we have an ongoing uh, initiative where we're trying to deal with uh, the needs of infants and toddlers, mm -hmm. okay, and mm -hmm. those who care for them. Mm -hmm. These adverse childhood experiences, 
do they, can they in fact happen from zero to three? Absolutely, they can happen from zero to three. Imagine it. I mean, that first several years are the periods when it's most critical for, for children to be nurtured by their parents. If they're neglected, if they're not cuddled and talked to and held, that has a psychological and physiological adverse effect on these children. Absolutely, this, this, can, this adversity can occur from birth. Dr. Rogers, what do we, by the way, we're speaking to Dr. Denise Rogers, uh, Vice Chancellor of Rutgers University. Um, what do we need to do from a public policy point of view? I mean, State of Affairs focuses less on politics, more on policy. What do we need to do? We need to have a two-pronged approach. The first prong is we need to mm -hmm. try to prevent children from experiencing adversity as much can as we? we can. Absolutely we can. We can do it through education, education of parents. We can do it through education of teachers and the systems that children interact with. So that when children are acting out, particularly traumatized children, mm -hmm. rather than necessarily taking a punitive approach and further traumatizing them, we can actually be more nurturing of them. We can help them to learn to emotionally self-regulate rather than moving toward spanking, for example, which just further traumatizes the children. But the second part of our approach has got to be dealing with the adults. So we have to create services for adults who've had adversity in their lives so that they can become healed, if you will. You know what's interesting to me about this? Um, there are some who, when they've heard this whole concept of uh, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, let's say, look, who hasn't had a mm -hmm. tough childhood? And the numbers are, are astronomical in mm -hmm. terms of out of every 10. Uh, well, put it this way, I think there are, uh, I think there are 10 indicators that we look for and a high percentage of people have had five or more. That's right. So people say, oh, many of us watching right now, some may say, well, come on, just get tough, tough it out. Not that simple. Toughing it out doesn't work. The, the other thing is, so the numbers look like this. We probably, about 30 to 40% of kids have experienced one adverse childhood experience, right? So the numbers get smaller. I mean, we really don't have as many children experiencing multiple adversities because these are pretty serious adversities we're talking about. Let me interrupt you. We're, yeah. right, we're in Newark right now. Yeah. Eight-year-old child, right. and our daughter happens to be eight. That's why the number right. hit me. Right. Eight-year-old little boy, little girl. Yeah. Central Ward, South Ward of Newark. Right. West Ward of Newark. Yeah. He or she could be facing what as it relates to this that is just traumatizing on so many levels. Well, you're, you're raising two very interesting and important points, Steve. The first is ACEs are disproportionately affecting children of color. So about 50% of Hispanic kids and 60% of black kids have one or more ACE. And white okay? kids? White kids, about 40%. Okay. Asian kids, about 25%. Okay. The second thing, though, is the American Academy of Pediatrics has clearly declared poverty in and of itself is an adverse experience. So just out of the box, no matter what's going on in the home, if a child is living in a community that's affected by poverty, they're having that one ACE. Very often, think about the incarceration rates that we see, right? Think about the rates of substance use that we see in the community. So it's very easy for these kids in inner city Newark to be experiencing multiple ACEs wow. and experiencing the, then the adverse effects of them. Real quick on this. Uh, actually, I first heard you speak about this at a, um, at a Newark Community Advisory Board Forum that we mm -hmm. had at, at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center. And one of the things that strikes me is that the, the topic of um, social determinants of health come up, comes right. up a lot. Right. Could you, in layperson's language, Dr. Right. Rogers, which you're so good at doing, explain 
what that means and why it's relevant to this larger discussion. Right. So social determinants of health are really those things outside of the medical system. They're like, what community do you live in? What kind of job do you have or not? What is the uh, availability of fresh fruits and vegetables in your community? How about transportation right? or lack thereof? Exactly. Can't get there. You, that's exactly right. These are the things. And what have we discovered? We've discovered that these social determinants are more impactful on a person's health outcomes than what I do as a physician in the office. But hold on. We look to physicians right. to heal us. And you are saying? That's right. I am saying that if we don't find a better way to heal our communities, and our families and our social structures, we will not be successful in healing individuals to the extent to which we need to. Final question, while more awareness is uh, important and that's what we are uh, about here, are there any policy changes, or at least one that you can mention that would not fix but help? Yes, so um, the mayor of Newark has included in his policies moving forward to have Newark eventually become a trauma-informed city. A trauma-informed city, real quick on that, that means? That means that we're going to train police officers and school teachers and those working in social services agencies about trauma so that they're better able to deal with their clientele who've been traumatized, but also they're better able to deal with their own trauma. So it's interesting, you've got several healthcare organizations here, but you're saying everyone else needs to be involved in this. Absolutely. Dr. Denise Rogers is Vice Chancellor at Rutgers University. Um, working every day, not just to help and heal people, but to talk about the important public policy issues beyond just what physicians do, but all of our responsibilities. As always, I learned from you. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD and follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We are pleased to welcome State Assemblyman Andrew Zwicker, who is a Democrat. He's also the uh, chair of the Science, Innovation, and Technology Committee in the uh, State Assembly. New committee. Brand new committee last year. Speaker Craig Coughlin created it as an Understanding as a center point for the fact that innovation, science, technology is an economic driver and is so much of what's in our lives today. Mm. So uh, we're about a year, a little more than a year in, and it's been an excellent, excellent experience so far. Two things. One, this is yeah. part of an ongoing conversation we're having on the future of innovation in the state, but also you are maybe the only person who happens to be a physicist, right. you happen to be at Princeton right. University. To ever serve in the legislature? First and only physicist to ever serve in the legislature. Hopefully not the last. Uh, why is that help us understand how that helps you be the chair of this committee? So one is, of course, a background in science. But I think that the other piece of this, besides the background, is that the difference between science and politics is, I think, a wonderful mixed up thing. Politics makes me a better scientist. I think a scientist, being a scientist, makes me a better politician better policymaker. A uh, scientist is a problem solver, trying to break down complicated problems into small bits that we can handle. And you got to start there. And science is evidence-driven. And again, you got to start there. Politics, as we know, is about people and emotions and lots of pieces that go into a political decision. Mm. But if you start with a common set of evidence and data, then I think you can find compromise across the political aisle, across the political spectrum. 
I think it's the right way we want to make public policy. Now, someone help us on this. The governor uh, has talked about the, the innovation economy. How do you see what that is in the state and, and what right. it could actually mean to the economy of the state in terms of jobs and economic right. development, tax revenue, et cetera? You start by looking backwards in time. New Jersey has been in innovation. Innovation starts by looking backwards. You start by looking backwards and see that innovation, you want to go back to Edison, you can go before Edison, has created an amazing discoveries that have changed how we live. Right? We could talk about the light bulb, the record player, color TV invented in New Jersey, the transistor invented in New Jersey, and not just invented, but creating jobs that you're talking about. And so you take that as your historical background, and you look at other states, or you look at the federal government, and you see that when we invest in innovation, it makes people's lives better, it creates jobs. And so if you look at New Jersey, and how are we going to create a growing economy? And there's a recent report out that showed in 2018 that our job growth has stagnated. And if you say, we're in New Jersey, what do we do well? Where do we have the greatest uh, chance for growth? It's in innovation. Describe it, though. Give us a couple of examples of where you see, Assemblyman, the opportunities for innovation turning into strong, powerful economic activity. Right. We already do it around life sciences. Uh, we have some of the largest, most creative life sciences companies trying to create a cure for cancer, do something about aging, whatever it might be. They already exist here in New Jersey. And the question is, for instance, using that as an example, is there a student right now or an inventor, an entrepreneur in a laboratory somewhere who's got the next great in invention? How do we make sure that this ecosystem is there so that they have a chance to find not just the capital that they need, but the uh, structure, the places, the laboratories, and the people and the workforce mm. so that their great idea can come out of their laboratory and into the workplace? So you have said that New Jersey in some ways, there's different hubs, mm -hmm. right? And those hubs are in somewhat broken, somewhat broken down by geography. Help me if I get this right. North Jersey is more focused, and the potential for innovation is more on the financial, on financial technology. Well, I look at it as if you look at our state, then you say North Jersey right across from the financial capital of the world. So, financial technology, cybersecurity, for instance, things that are important to us, whether you are working in the financial industry or you're just online. The center of our state is where much of our life sciences and healthcare work is happening. The southern part of the state is known for aviation and agriculture. And out by the shore, we've got both wind and solar, so renewable energy. We also have things like autonomous vehicles and the next generation of mm -hmm. transportation. What's the job of a state legislative committee, right. which usually has oversight and regulatory responsibilities, for helping to fuel and drive those hub opportunities right. around innovation. So what other states have shown and what this committee is working on is when we directly invest into these startup companies along with and partnership with the private sector, then it's a win-win all around and we accelerate this economic growth. We accelerate the number of jobs that are there. So what we do as a committee is we have to put into place public policy proposals that will accelerate the job creation, mm. that will spur our entire economy. You know, what's interesting is um, you, you've got some folks, some in the business community, who say, yeah, I'm all for innovation. I believe in the innovation economy. But they often will say that our tax policies and the fact that New Jersey is such a high tax state 
mitigate against those opportunities, fight against those opportunities, you say? I, I say a couple of things. One is, you know, we're under enormous financial pressure. And so there's always this question of where do we get the resources we need to pay for the things that we owe, our bills for our fine public education system, um, for, for the things that drive our government and, and New Jersey Transit, et cetera. The, the piece of it then is what can we do to create jobs that create the economic incentives that create mm -hmm. the revenue that we need that start to help us relieve that enormous burden that we see the, the private sector being mm -hmm. so concerned about. One more quick question. Yeah. It's not really so much of a, an economic question, but more, more of um, let's put cybersecurity yeah. in context. The role of the legislative committee that you chair as it relates to cyber cybersecurity and protection of people's privacy, how do you deal with that? We've, looked at a series of bills to make New Jersey really one of the state leaders when it comes to the fact that when you're online, when you're shopping, whether you're writing an email to a friend or a family member or a work colleague, whether you are downloading uh, to look at a movie, stream a movie. Well, if I'm Facebook and I'm posting something about right. my kid and all of a sudden somebody's got my information to right. do what with it? Right. And that's the, not what I signed up for, or did I sign up for it and not even and, know it? And that's exactly the point, Steve, is that you need to have control of your data, what happens to it. If you want to choose to share it, your choice. But how do I make that choice if Facebook, I don't want to listen, right. this isn't about Facebook right. exclusively. It's about a lot of entities, just that I'm more aware of Facebook. Right. Are they supposed to say, time out, Steve, before we go any further, here are some questions we want to ask you. And not in some sort of legalese that I can't understand. Exactly. So we have proposals in place that say, hey, you're going to sign up for Facebook or you're going to go on online for whatever reason, right? We're not going to pick on them. Could be Twitter, yeah. could be Instagram, could be whatever. It could be Uber. It could right. be, it doesn't, right. does not matter, right? Don't give my information out unless you ask unless, me. And they ask you in a way that you understand and you say, I'm good with that, then they're fine. If that is not, state by state though, Assemblyman? If we could do it at the federal level, and that's what we hear from these companies, that sure, should we have a national policy? We could. But without getting into why that's never going to happen. Go ahead. Yeah. If it can't happen in Congress, then we're going to make sure it happens in New Jersey and we protect the people of New Jersey. Assemblyman, we are glad that there is a, a physicist in the state legislature. We're glad it's you. And we appreciate you taking the Thank time you. to talk to us about innovation. Thanks, All Steve. The best. Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks for having Stay me. Stay right there. This is uh, State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll catch you next time. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 30 years of broadcast excellence. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by RWJ Barnabas Health, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, NJM Insurance Group, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, Choose New Jersey, and by NJIT. Every year, thousands of senior citizens are abused, neglected, or taken advantage of financially. Elder abuse can happen in many places, and seniors may not recognize they're being abused or may not feel comfortable coming forward. Raising the level of awareness of elder abuse is key to protecting our seniors, so understanding the warning signs of abuse is important. Be aware of changes in daily patterns, finances, and changes in appearance. If you think someone is being abused, please contact your local Adult Protective Services Unit 
or local authorities to get help right away.